Welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church in Wilson, Oklahoma, preaching the weekly teaching and preaching ministry of the church. We are grateful that you are choosing to join us today. Our prayer is that you are blessed by today's study of God's Word, and your heart will be receptive to what God desires to teach you today. For more information about FBC Wilson, please visit our website at fbcwilson.org. We hope you enjoyed today's service, and we look forward to studying God's Word with you today. Thank you, Adam, and those that serve this morning with you and leading us in worship. Hope you have a Bible with you this morning. Hope you'll open it up and turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And also, when you came in, hopefully you got one of these bulletins. On the back of that, there'll be some notes if you want to reference that during our time together in the Word. So Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Well, Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, and starting in verse 9, I'm going to read aloud out of my copy of God's Word, if you want to follow along in your copy of God's Word. But we're going to read verse 29 down through verse 39 this morning, and then we're going to take some time, and we're going to look at what God has to say to us through His Spirit, the inspired Word of God, what it has to say to us this morning. Mark chapter 1 and verse 29, Mark continues in the gospel and he says, And immediately he left the synagogue, referring to Jesus, and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her and he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and he went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons." I pray that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. It was back in 1988. Some of you in this room don't remember 1988. Some of you in this room remember 1988 better than I do. But it was in 1998. It was the Republican National Convention. There was a gentleman that was at the microphone to accept the nomination for the presidential candidate for the Republican Party. His name was George Herbert Walker Bush. And as he stepped to the microphone and began to give his acceptance speech for receiving the nomination for the candidacy of president, he made a statement, just one line that has lived on that you can even find websites completely devoted to this one phrase. He stood there at the microphone at the podium. He looked straight into the camera as a nation was watching and he said, Read my lips. No new taxes. 
People liked that idea. People decided that's the kind of guy we want to have being our president. So they elected this young man as the 41st president. Two years later in 1990, embroiled with a Republican president and a House and a Senate that were controlled by a different party, and budget negotiations that were breaking down, President Bush had to make some compromises. And one of those compromises on the budgetary negotiation was there were some existing taxes that had to be increased to meet those budgetary needs. And in 1990, George Bush made a compromise to which then Bill Clinton, the president presidential candidate running in 1992 capitalized on and ended up winning the election. And there are many people still today that think the reason, one of the primary reasons why he lost that election was because he didn't keep his word. Now what does that have to do with Mark? Well, if you think back to where we've been at in Mark, Mark is giving us this picture. Now, Matthew, commentators say, Bible scholars say, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. They, they, they said that Luke, his gospel, is written to a primarily Gentile audience. They say John is written to an audience of, of the church. But they say Mark, Mark is specifically written to the Romans. That whole ethnic people, that whole Roman culture, that whole Roman government. And so as Mark is writing this, he's not just writing about what happened to the Jews, what happened to the Hebrews. He's writing this for non-believers to believe in who Jesus is. That's why it's called the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus Christ. So up until this point, Mark has been presenting Jesus and he says, I want you to know who this Jesus is. So he's been giving us these pictures about what Jesus has done and what Jesus has said. And if you are an unbelieving Roman reading this, you might be thinking, yeah, right. Can I really believe if this is true? So what Mark is trying to drive to, he's trying to give them all of these different pictures of evidence to say this guy is who he says he is. You can believe what he says. And you see examples of this. If you, if you think back Turn back to the page or look above the page when Jesus comes out and he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then you get down there to verse 17 and he sees those first disciples and he says, follow me and I will make you a fishers of men. And then you get to the synagogue and as he's in the synagogue and he's teaching and the, and the man that's got, been, been oppressed by the demon and Jesus casts that out. And so these, these signs and these miracles are happening. But Mark wants to continue to prove the point to the reader. That Jesus is who he says he is. And this morning we've been, we've been looking at several different facets of how Mark is presenting that. And this morning in this text I want us to look at it from the lens of that Mark is presenting Jesus as being our hope. He is the hope that we have. We sang about that a few moments ago. About the hope that we have in Christ. Our eternal hope that we have in the blood and the death and the resurrection of Christ. So as Mark presents this picture of Jesus as being a hope for people, he does it in three different ways. And We're going to see this lined out there in your notes. He shows Christ being hope in the home, hope in the community, and hope in the world. And when we think about this world today, this world needs something. Our politics is in shambles. Our economy is plagued by corruption. Our society and culture is roiled in immorality. Truth is relative. Gender is fluid. 
people are at odds on what the answer is. And there is a whole culture today that is convinced that man is the answer for the problems that man created. And, and there's a certain breakdown when we start to think that we can solve our own problems, that we are the ones creating. And so what Mark does is he comes in and says, you know what? We're not going to try to go back and try to dissect how you got here. We're just going to say now that you are here, here's the hope that you have. The hope is not in the next election. The hope is not in the next paycheck. The hope is not in the next social reform. The hope is not in the next decade. The hope is not in the next medical advancement. The hope is not in you. The hope is only in Jesus Christ. Now that's a message still needed today. So Mark shows us this. Shows us in verse 29 down through 31. Then he shows us again in verse 32 through 35. And then 35 and 39. So, so look with me. Walk through this with me if you would. How he shows Christ, the hope of Christ in these different areas. If you look back up in verse 29, it talks about what he did after he left the synagogue. Now this just follows along in the storyline that Mark is presenting. If you remember last week, he's there in the synagogue, the man with the, the oppression of the demon. He casts the demon out or sells the demon to get away from the guy. The guy convulses, he leaves, and everybody's like, whoa, that's kind of big. We haven't seen that before. So what does it do? Jesus leaves there, and where does he go? He goes to the house of Peter and Andrew. Now, it says there in your text, Simon, but that's just because Simon hasn't had his name changed to Peter yet. But what we know about in our common vernacular is Peter. So Jesus leaves church, he leaves the church house, and he heads to their house. He heads to Simon, Peter, and his brother Andrew's house. Now, when he comes into the house, the, what does this story tell us? The story tells us that Peter's mother-in-law lay sick. Uh, you go up to Luke chapter 4 or, or Matthew chapter 8, and there's parallel passages that are there. You go to Luke chapter 4, and it says there was a, there was a high fever. In Matthew chapter 8, it says that when they came in and they realized he was sick, the people around were imploring, saying, Jesus, please do something. It doesn't tell us what she was sick from. I've watched this chosen episode. I know what they think. I it doesn't tell us what the sickness was. It doesn't tell us if, if she was on her deathbed. It doesn't say. It just says as he goes in, the woman is sick. Now you think about the home today. Depending on the decade you were born in, our view or our understanding of homes might be different. You see, our homes have changed with generations. It was several generations ago that the home was a place that you pretty much slept and you pretty much just kept your belongings. And the evening times in that home was a time when people would sit out on the front porch and you would sit on the front porch and watch the people walk by, you'd watch the people drive by and you'd sit there and the neighbors would come and you were all just doing your life on the front porch in the evenings. Next generation comes along. The front porch is no longer the place to be. They have moved to the back porch. Now you have backyard pools, and now you have the big pergolas that Mo likes to sell. And now you've got the big backyard grills, and now you've got the big play sets. And now you have all of these things that are out there in the backyard. And now we've gone from the front porch to the back porch. Now everybody's spending all of their time out on the back porch. Then another generation has come along, and we've moved from the front porch to the back porch. And now we're in the living room. Now everybody comes in and they don't spend time on the front porch. They don't spend time on the back porch. All they do is sit there and sit and soak 
doing this all the time or watching the TV all the time, and they're just sitting in their house. And so sometimes what you think of home may not be what someone else thinks of a home. I was listening to a preacher that Van turned me on to just yesterday, and he was talking about the first 11 years of his life, his home life was miserable, and his home life was terrible. In fact, he was fearful to even go home. You see, sometimes we understand that our, hope, our homes can be places of happiness or hurt. So when it says here in the text that Jesus left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew, it is easy for you and, our, and I, you and I, and our Western mindset to automatically assume what the home was like. But what Mark tells us is that it was a home that needed hope. The mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. Apparently, if they had the, re- the means and the ability to remedy that, they would have done that. But when Christ comes into the home, notice Christ brought healing to the home. And you can just imagine this, if you will. Church gets out. Maybe, I don't know the story, this is just my opinion, this is just my opinion, but church gets out and and Peter's mother-in-law is at the house and Peter's wife is there taking care of the mother-in-law. And so she is sitting there and she knows that uh, Simon's going to be coming home, Peter's going to be coming home, maybe his brother's going to be coming home. Then all of a sudden in comes the door, here comes Peter, here comes Andrew, and here comes Jesus, and here comes a whole bunch of other people and they're coming in. And she's like, I didn't plan on this many people for lunch, I wasn't wasn't thinking about this kind of stuff. And she might be a little bit frustrated, she might be a little discouraged, like now I didn't have the place picked up I wasn't expecting company all of these things might be coming in and you think about Peter it wasn't like he stopped out at the local Walgreens or CVS and got some Robitussin or got some ice packs it wasn't like he showed up with a prescription or he showed up with some special remedy when he walked in who did who did Peter have he had Jesus Christ with him you see the most beneficial thing that I can do for my is to bring Christ into my home. Husbands, fathers, men, the most beneficial thing, the most helpful thing, the most needed thing you can do for your marriage and for your family is to bring Christ into the home. Right, right there, Mark, Mark is saying, listen, all of this stuff, life was going on, life was happening, but it changed. It changed when Jesus came into the room. He liked the last part of verse 30. It says, they told him about her. He came, took her by the hand, and lifted her up, and the fever left her. It was like it, was like it didn't matter about the medicine. It didn't matter about the temperature of the room. It didn't matter about her medical condition or her physical condition. When Christ showed up, he brought hope, and he brought healing to the home. The most helpful thing I can do for my marriage is to bring Christ to my marriage. To be as close and as faithful to Jesus is the most beneficial, needed thing I can do for Jaylene. The best thing I can do as a father to children is to be as close and as faithful as to Jesus. Peter is walking with Jesus. And when Peter goes home, he takes Jesus with him to the home. And Mark gives us this illustration. Mark gives us this picture and says, Christ is hope. Christ is hope for the home. But not just the home. Notice verse 32. 
Notice then what happens. They get home. They probably had lunch. They probably had them a little bit of a nap, a holy, a holy Sunday nap, if you will. And then it says in verse 32, that evening at sundown, they, talking about the people, talking about the crowd, talking about the culture, talking about the society. It says that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or pressed by demons. You ever read something like that and say, why'd they wait till the evening time? Well, the reason is Sabbath. Sabbath in the Jewish tradition started on Friday night at sundown. Sabbath in the Jewish tradition runs from Friday night at sundown to Saturday evening at sundown. So there were certain restrictions and there, there were certain traditions and there were certain expectations about how much they could move and how much they could go and, and what, what all activities they could participate in while it was the Sabbath. But you get to the end of the Sabbath day at sundown and as soon as that sun sets on the horizon, the Sabbath is over and they can resume their normal activities. So you can just imagine the picture. They get out of church that Sunday morning. And I don't know what they did. I don't know if they had Instagram stories. I don't know if they had Facebook posts. I don't know if they got on X. I don't know how they disseminated the news. But church lets out and the news starts to spread, starts to wrinkle through the community. This guy named Jesus, this is what this guy Jesus did. And everybody starts getting excited. Everybody starts to anticipate again. And then in the evening time, the whole community shows up. And they all, what does it say? They all brought to him those who were sick and those who were oppressed. What is Mark showing us? Mark is showing us the needs of the people were both real and urgent. There are people in need in Jesus' day and there are people in need Today And there are people all around us that we have a variety of needs, both spiritual and physical. And some of these needs are real, and some of these needs are urgent. So what does he do? Mark is showing us. Mark is not just showing this for the Jews. He's showing us for the Romans and for all the church to read after writing this. But he says, the whole community showed up to Jesus. What can Jesus do with this? And when they showed up, the needs were both real and urgent. And also notice the needs were both physical and spiritual. If you look there in the text, it tells us in verse 31, they were sick or oppressed by demons. Now that idea of being oppressed is not necessarily what we might think of a possession. Uh, there's debate. There's debate on this subject of whether a demon can control a person or not. They can impress a person. They can afflict a person. They can harass a person. They can tempt a person. They can be an overwhelming presence in their lives. But there's, there's lots of debates on whether an individual can be controlled, like manipulated, like under the power of a demon. But what it says here in the text is they showed up and there were those that were sick, that were afflicted by disease, and there were those that were there that were oppressed by, by demonic influences. You had both physical and spiritual needs. So what happens? Verse 34. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. What did Jesus do? Jesus Christ ministered to the need. He ministered to 
the need. Now, why do I bring that up and why do I make a point out of that? Because sometimes in the church today, especially sometimes in 2023, we just assume that all help is helpful. We just assume that all help is helpful. And sometimes we just assume that whatever we do, if we call it help, that is meaning the need that we have before the eyes of God to be the hands and feet of Jesus. But let me put a hypothetical idea in front of you. Let's say someone, I come across someone on the street. It's a drunkard in a state of inebriation. And they've got a bottle and they're trying to open the bottle so they continue the drink, the drunken stupor. And they're sitting there and, and because, because of their drunken state, they can't get the bottle open and they can't get the cap untwisted. Is it the most helpful thing for me to do is to help them get the bottle open? And yet there are times and there are seasons that we're tempted to just to help the visible instead of to look to the spiritual. And here in the text, Mark is presenting Jesus Christ. And he's saying not only is he hope in the home, but he's hope in the community. The whole community turned out and Jesus Christ met the need. You might write down there in your margin or there in your notes, John chapter 4. John chapter 4, Jesus is on his way and he gets to the well. And here comes this Samaritan woman. Remember the story? The Samaritan woman shows up and Jesus says, I would like a drink of water. And they start to have a conversation. She thinks that Jesus is talking about physical water and re- tangible water. He's talking about living water. And he is saying, listen, you have a need to have some type of peace because you can't figure out which guy you want to stay married to and which guy you want to stay living with. You you have a piece about where you're going to worship and where you're going to serve. I'm going to address it that your, your biggest need is not a physical need. Your biggest need is a spiritual need. It might make a difference in the way that we approach ministries in this church if we were to ask ourselves, what is the spiritual need before we ask what is the physical need? So Jesus is hope in the community. But if all we do or all they did was just heal people and just send them on their way, then they would miss who Jesus was. So Jesus comes into the scene and he heals them. He, he frees them from this demonic oppression. And he, he's doing these things because he has hope in the community. And then you get down to verse 35. And Jesus continues. He says, And rising early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And as he's out there praying, the other disciples, they wake up and they're like, where is the guy? Where is Jesus? Well, Jesus had gotten up while everybody else was asleep, while it was still dark, and he went out and prayed. I find it ironic that Jesus found it necessary and needed to start his day with God, and many of us today think it's optional. I find it ironic that Jesus, the practice and the picture that we see from Jesus is he started his day with God. And yet we have many people today that confess to be believers that say, oh, I don't need to do that. You're being legalistic. I'm just following the practice that Jesus gave us. But what does Jesus do? Jesus gets up. He gets to a desolate place. And then you get down to verse 37 and Peter comes and it says, everyone is looking for you. That word everyone in the original language means everyone. (laughs) It means every single person that Peter knew about. It means that every single person that they had a phone number for, every single person that got mail, every single person that had a social security number, every single person was looking for Jesus. 
Because the news had got out. The news had got out of what Jesus had done in the home of Peter and Andrew. The news had got out of what he had done in the community. And now the entire world, the the entire known world around that area was now coming saying, Is he hope for us? So it says there in the text, everyone is looking for you. And you might think that Jesus might say, well, you know what? They can come to me. Oh, you know what? They just need to sign up for my book of the month club. You know what? They just need to give a little bit of money and they need to come and they need to go through this discipleship process and they need to do this and they need to do this. And I'm going to put all of these processes in place of what they have to do and what they have to look like and what they have to sound like and what they have to, uh, the hoops they have to go through. But Jesus doesn't do that. Notice it says in verse 38, Jesus said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. I want to remind you this morning that Christ came to us. We did not go These things are demonic. God, all right. You may say, well, that's not that big of a distinction. It's a huge distinction. It's a huge distinction when we think about how did you and I hear about Jesus? How did we get saved? Christ came to us. It tells us in Acts chapter 4 in verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And here in the text, Mark is saying, how did the word of Jesus get spread? How did the people find out who Jesus was? How did the people know what Jesus had done for them? It said that Jesus went to them. He says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus said, I am going to go to them. Could Jesus have sat back and said, you know what, if they can hear about it, they can come to me? Sure he could have done that. Could he have said, well, let them find out on their own? Sure he could have said that. Could he have said, I'm going to make a Facebook post about it. I'm going to write an article in the newspaper. I'm going to put a big banner in the sky being pulled by the airplane. I'm going to put it on the side of the Goodyear blimp so the next football game, they will be able to see it. He could have done all that stuff, but what did Jesus do? Jesus came to us. The reason why you and I have hope in this room this morning is because he came to us. He came to you. He came to me. He came to our neighbors. He came to our parents. He came to our children. He came to our families. He came to our coworkers. He came to our friends. He came to the people, the kids that our children go to school with. He came to us. Why did he come to us? He came to us so that we might go to them. He came to us, and yet we think that we have no responsibility or opportunity to go to them. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you not understand that when he comes and he is hope, he's not just hope to you and me. He is hope to all people. Oh, well, Spence, you don't understand. See, Spence, my understanding of salvation is is that there are certain people that will be saved and certain people that won't be saved. Well, great. Who are the ones that are going to be saved? Well, I don't know. (laughs) Well, good. So that means that every person you come in contact with, you don't know whether they're going to be saved or not. 
right. Then what does that mean? That means we go tell everybody because we don't know who's going to respond or not respond. Friday, we're walking through the, the Tulsa State Fair. <laughs> and I'm walking down an aisle, and there is two men that are selling some equipment for treating cattle. It's like those big, long tubes that the cows walk underneath and the, and the fly spray or whatever the chemical treatment they get down on the cows. And so they've got these little things set up uh, trying to treat cows for flies and other pests or whatever, other, other bugs. And so I'm walking down through the aisle and these, and these two agricultural guys, I've got a stroller, I've got two kids in the stroller, I've got four kids around me and a mother, and I'm walking down through them. They look at me and they say, uh, you got any cows? I didn't say that nicely. They asked me if I had any cows. And, and I looked and I, and I said, uh, no, sir. And I already told Wyatt, the secret to this thing is you got to keep moving. You can't, you can't get bogged down. Once you stop, you're in trouble. So you got to keep a pace. You got to keep moving. And so I said, no, sir. And I kept going. And then one of them snickered and said, well, you got to have cows as wide as those legs are. Now, I don't think it would be proper in order for me to just put my foot up there on that deal and, and show you. But I thought, he's making a stereotype call of me. He looks down at me, and I got shorts on. And he says, well, you must be some type of a farmer or rancher to have white legs like those. And I thought, must be a Ford guy. I just thought, I, I, had no, I had no idea what to do for him. But it was just one of those things that he assumed he didn't know if I had cows or not, did he? The only thing he needed to do, he needed to do, he knew to do, was to ask me. The only way that he was going to find out whether I had cows or not is he had to ask. There's a principle there. The only people that you know that they need Jesus or not is you got to ask them. The only people that know if they have hope in Jesus or not are the people that you got to ask. See, there's a certain principle there that we will see these salesmen and we will see these solicitors and we admire their courage and yet we have the greatest news on the face of the planet and we get timid and we get dry mouth and we get apprehensive of what to say. We forget and we do not seize upon the opportunity to shout from the rooftops that not only is Christ his hope in the home, not only is he Christ his hope in the community, but he's hope in the world. So Jesus says, let us go. Let us go to the next towns so that I can preach. Because this is why I came. So how do we take a passage like this and put it in application to now? We've talked about how we're going to look at these different scriptures that we look, come to and we're looking at in the lens of in our homes and in our witness and in our evangelism. So how do we take a passage like this? We, we see how Mark is saying he is hope. He's hope for your home. He's hope for your community, he's hope for the world. How, how do we then take these and then apply them? Just three quick ways and we'll be done. When it comes to our homes, we must remember that worship begins in the home. Worship begins at home. Worship of what, Spence? That's the question. Worship begins at home. Mother or father, if your child watch you how you spend your time and they watch what you pay attention to, they watch what gets you excited, they watch what gets you 
sad. They watch what matters to you. They are watching what you are worshiping. First church I went to serve at, the man that led the singing was a diehard OU fan. I remember one time he was not at church on a Sunday. And I said, what happened? The OU Sooners lost the night before and he was physically sick because his team lost. I'm not trying to get an OU or OSU debate. But if you're so hung up on 11 guys in tights chasing a leather ball, relax. Relax. Worship begins in our home. So what we spend our time doing, what we get excited about, what we get sad about, what we spend our money on, what we spend our time thinking about, what we spend our time encouraging our kids to think about, all of these things, they bring us back to this worship at home. We can be very adept at bringing our kids in here, or even you and I coming in here, and doing the right things and looking the right way as if we've been worshiping here. And you might be worshiping here, but how many times do we come in and worship here, and today is the first day that we've worshiped in seven days? How many times when you come in here, this is the only time you'll listen to religious, God-centered music? Or how many times when you come in here, this is the first time that you've sang truths about the goodness of God all week long? You know, there's some people that come into church, and the only time they're ever around this, this environment of worship is when they come in here. And I'm going to let you know a little secret. You are allowed to worship God outside of this room. You're allowed to worship God. Well, Spence, I can't do that. See, I don't have a Jenna singing, and I don't have an Adam playing, and I don't have a Corey on the drums, and I don't have an Austin on the keyboard. I can't do that. Oh, yes, you can. You can listen to Worship music. You can listen to hymns. You have so much accessibility to surround yourselves in a worshipful environment. Oh, it's not just a matter of saying I can only worship when I come in here. Well, Spence, you don't understand. I don't like to just worship in music. Well, there's other ways that you can worship. Well, how else can I worship? You can worship by reading God's Word. You can worship by memorizing God's word. You can worship by serving God in his kingdom. You can worship by telling other people about Jesus. There's a multitude of ways you can worship if you have a heart to worship. But unfortunately, we don't worship in our homes. And it's evident in the lack of worship in the church. So when we think about Jesus and being in the hope, we must understand that when it comes to our homes, our homes is the place where worship begins. And not just that, but there's a second application when it comes to our witness. We must, we need, we shall, we should discern between the temporal and the eternal. What do you mean, Spence, by discerning between the temporal and the eternal? When they're all coming to Jesus, and they're all coming, and they say, I've got a sickness, I've got a, an oppression, I've got a sin, I've got a problem, I've got an ailment, I've got an affliction. All those things are coming. Jesus knew. Jesus knew that one is eternal, and that one is temporal. Every single one of us, if the Lord continues to tarry, is going to die. And every single one of us 
regardless of how long the Lord tarries or not, is going to live for an eternity in one of two places. We're going to live for an eternity either in heaven or hell. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that it doesn't matter how long you live. If you live 10 years or if you live 100 years on this earth, when you die, you will spend an eternity in either heaven or hell. And the difference that makes or the, 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 the dividing line between heaven or hell is the decision we made in our faith and our trust and our belief in Jesus Christ in this life. And yes, sometimes you and I can get all strung up on the temporal. And we forget about the eternal. And church, brothers and sisters in Christ, friends, oh, I'm not saying that we should ignore the physical needs. I'm not saying that we should ignore the real needs and the urgent needs. I'm just saying that when it comes to the ministry of the church, let us have an eternal perspective. Those people over there that are down on hard times, the greatest need they have is a right relationship with the Lord. Those people over there that you read in the news about that just had tragedy, unspeakable tragedy, come to their home, the greatest need they have is a right relationship with the Lord. You're walking through the fair midway and you're seeing all the people, the greatest need that all those people have is a right relationship with the Lord. You watch the news, you see the news, you turn on the television, and you see the, 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 the debacle in the, 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 uh, uh, the government, you see the debacle in the politics. You read an article like I read this week of a, a U.S. representative that was not getting that person's, the, 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 the vote was coming for the government shutdown, and so they pulled the fire alarm. And the fire alarm goes off in the entire building. It, it causes a big ruckus to realize that somebody had pulled the fire alarm and then when they asked the person, why would you pull the fire alarm? According to their spokesman that I read in the article said, well, I didn't realize it was going to set off the whole fire alarm. Well, what would you think was going to happen when you pull the fire alarm? And when you look at that, it's not that that person needs a swift kick in the rear. That person needs a right relationship with the Lord. And every situation that you have in life, it is answered by a right relationship with the Lord. And when they start coming to Jesus, and we'll see this throughout the Gospel of Mark, when they start coming to Jesus, Jesus knows that their greatest need is not spiritual, or not physical deliverance. It is not temporal deliverance. The greatest need they have is spiritual deliverance. And then this last one, and I'm done. It's a question. Who cannot receive hope? In the text... Mark has been showing us how Christ brought home to the home of Peter and Andrew. He brought hope to the community when he's healing those that are afflicted and those that are hurting in the community. He was going to bring home a hope to the rest of the, 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 the area around Galilee. That's what he says there in verse 39. And he starts to go out and he starts to preach and he's bringing hope. And here this morning in October 1st of 2023, the question is before us. Who cannot receive hope. And you may say, well, Spence, that's kind of an odd question. No, I think it's a valid question to ask. Who cannot receive hope? Because see, Jesus Christ is bringing hope in all three of these areas. So here's my answer. Romans chapter 10. 
I'm going to pick it up in the middle of the passage. It says in verse 14, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, The Lord who has believed what he has heard, Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. My answer to my own question. Who cannot receive hope? My answer is, those that never hear. Those that never hear about what Jesus has done. Those that never hear about what Jesus can do. Those that never hear about what he has done for you. They cannot receive the hope of Jesus without hearing about what Jesus has done. So who are they? Who are the names and who are the faces? Who are the people? That, to be quite honest with yourself, you don't know if they have hope or not. You've assumed. You've guessed. You've thought. You think. You feel. You're sure. But you don't know if they have hope. Or not. You see, Jesus comes on the scene through the inspired words of the Holy Spirit through the pen of Mark, and he comes and he says, Christ is hope. And the rest of the gospel, the entire people that follow Jesus are continually announcing and they're continually saying, He is hope. But there may be someone, or there may be some ones that you don't know if they've received hope yet or not. I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you today to ask yourself the question, do you know if everyone that you know has hope in Jesus today? You bow your heads with me. Thank you for joining us today at FBC Wellston. We would love to hear from you or connect with you if you will visit our website at fbcwellston.org. Please let us know if we can serve you in any way, and we look forward to connecting with you in the future.